Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a truly exciting episode. Joining me is David Kuhn and Ben Jordan. David is the lead for corporate resilience at World Wildlife Fund, and Ben is the senior director of packaging and climate at the Coca-Cola Company. We talk about why engaging the corporate sector is so important to World Wildlife Fund and why the private sector will be so important for the emerging adaptation sector. We'll discuss sustainability and its longer history with corporate America and how adaptation can complement the work that's already been done in sustainability. You'll also learn about an innovative project the two are working on together that will build climate resilience and protect water quality in Guatemala. This episode will ground you in the current state of play with climate adaptation and the business sector. We cover a lot of ground in this episode. Before we get started, I wanted to acknowledge the generous sponsorship of this episode by World Wildlife Fund. Thanks to these sponsorships, I can continue to bring you these adaptation stories from leading experts from around the world. Okay, let's join David Kuhn of WWF to kick off this conversation on resilience and corporate America. Hey, adapters, welcome back. We have a very exciting episode for you. Joining me is David Kuhn. David is the lead for corporate resilience at World Wildlife Fund. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Hey, Doug. Thanks for having me. All right. So I'm having you on here in this introductory conversation as we're setting it up. Ben Jordan from the Coca-Cola Company will be joining both of us for a panel discussion in a little bit, but I wanted to bring you on to provide some context. You're going to explain a little bit more about what you do at WWF in that conversation, but let's just talk more broadly about why is WWF interested in corporate partnerships? Yeah, that's sort of my space. I work mostly with corporates. So it would make sense for WWF to try to instill our thinking, to instill our mission when we're working with companies because they play such an outsized role and they have so much leverage and influence and impact. So that's really where we see the an opportunity in, in working with companies in order to get to the space that, that we want to get to. So more broadly too, and I guess from your experiences working with different companies, you know, what, what is the current state of play with climate resilience and adaptation with businesses out there? What's the lay of the land? Yeah, good question. I mean, you know, good news, bad news, but I think it, it, it always will be when it comes to resilience and adaptation, right? It's always this ongoing process. I, you know, I've been working with companies really over the past four years in this space. It's it's a newer space for companies. So they're just starting to figure out what it means for them. I think sort of across the board, what we've seen is is that action isn't necessarily meeting the need across the board for climate action in general. And, you know, the IPCC reports out this year, frankly, really every iteration have made it pretty clear that the window for adaptation is closing, becoming more expensive, more difficult to adapt, and those trends are going to continue. So action is obviously urgently needed right now. And for corporates just to start getting in this space right now, right, they need to do a lot really quickly in order to meet that need. So companies are getting there. They're starting to understand the need, the risk to their companies of climate change, the impact that they can have, the impetus for taking action and and how they can scale that action with others. They're starting to get in the space of this risk analysis and risk reporting. And now what we really want to do is see that translate into 
different action what companies have done in the past when it comes to risk management or risk mitigation because you know that's sort of what got us into the problem in the first place is that we've seen a lot of companies especially you know like successful companies they're going to want to continue to be successful so they're going to say I'm going to continue to do what I've always been doing but but really that can't really happen anymore because of all the changes that we're seeing in the climate sphere so we're seeing some gains in understanding some gains in action but it's really it's, it's not enough and we're always going to be pushing companies to do more because more is always going to be needed to be done, right? This idea that climate change is blanketing this world in uncertainty and, and making it just tougher and less predictable is always going to require increased understanding, increased education, increased action. So it's going to be an ongoing process. The good news is that we're seeing companies start to take it seriously and start to do something about it. The question is always going to be how fast can we get things done and at what scale? Because really the the speed and the scale of things, the need there right now is so huge that we're going to have to just continue to push, try to get more out of everything and everyone everywhere. So David, tell me about WWF's resilience principles. Yeah, that's sort of where sustainability and resilience really meet is in our resilience principles. This is how we work with companies and with ourselves and with other partners on resilience is we have three resilience principles, one being do no harm to nature, right? We, we talk often about how nature is our first line of defense against climate change, and it can also provide solutions. So we don't want to compromise that in any way going forward. And that's sort of your traditional sustainability work, that reduce your footprint work. Do no harm to nature is our first resilience principle. Use nature to help people. This idea that nature-based solutions, again, nature can provide solutions to climate change and help people adapt to climate change. You invest in nature, not necessarily nature alone, but you invest in nature and climate adaptation through nature-based solutions. That's sort of principle two. And we try to inject these things in everything that we do with companies and, and with others. Principle three, help nature itself adapt. It's the idea that nature-based solutions themselves are going to be impacted by climate change. So you need to design them in a way that accounts for those climate change impacts, shifting conditions, shocks and stresses in the future. These are fundamental to everything that we do when we talk to policymakers and when we work with companies. These are the three principles sort of at our core that we try to instill or inject in everything that we design for and with companies and our projects and programs on the ground. Make sure that we're always true to our mission and true to those sustainability and and conservation objectives that we have at WWF. Okay. So a lot of businesses aren't doing adaptation resilience and they're just getting started with a lot of them. But I got my start in the natural resource sector. And I think this goes true for every sector. There isn't that adaptation person on staff. And so when companies think about resilience and adaptation, what has been your experience? And usually who in-house is first handling this topic? Yeah, I think it depends on it depends on what you want to adapt or what you want to be resilient. I mean, I think companies have generally been working on the resilience of their company, this risk management space for a long time. And that sits in the risk management departments or procurement departments or separate from sustainability spaces. I mostly work with the sustainability folks because that's traditionally where WWF has worked and where I have ends, I have connections and relationships, and and so does my organization. So we have the year of the sustainability officers. They often understand that there's a need to connect the sustainability shop to those risk managers, to those, you know, the CFO, have those direct lines. I mean, I think it's sort of our job to get them there. I mostly work within the sustainability space, and there's an ongoing need to sort of 
bridge that gap where you have these different departments and companies working on the resilience, say, of their company without taking into consideration the sustainability pieces of that company, you know, the nature and the people on the ground that are really the foundation of a company and its supply chains. Well, if you're defining resilience or adaptation in different ways in different sections of your company, there's that disconnect, then you're, you could potentially be working against yourself. So that's one issue. It's getting better. I'm having more conversations with risk managers. The people in the sustainability shops are getting those direct lines to CFOs. But really where I've been working mostly is the conversations start with those sustainability managers and and those heads of sustainability at companies because they're the ones that understand where we're coming from from WWF. So we're going to dig more into this issue of sustainability with Ben from Coca-Cola. But I I guess just one more question I have for you is, are people asking you from the other side, why aren't you just working on sustainability and stop working on resilience? Did that tension kind of come up? Sure. You know, again, it kind of depends on how you're defining the term. We don't want companies to be resilient at the expense of their sustainability initiatives. We saw this when the pandemic hit, that a company, certain companies had to get rid of their entire sustainability teams because they had to make that decision. They had to cut something because they lost a lot of revenue and there was this big shock to their system. So they decided to prioritize the resilience of their company at the expense of their sustainability initiatives. First and foremost, what we want them to do is make sure that that doesn't happen, right? That you're investing in resilient sustainability and this idea that you're going to achieve your sustainability goals in the face of shocks and stresses. It's not a CSR report. It's not you know, a nice little something that you put out every year to make your company look good, but it's sort of more core to your business. That's the message that we try to get across is that you invest in sustainability as a means to make your company resilient or as a means to make people and nature resilient on the ground. And again, that's the foundation for the resilience or the well-being or the health of your company. Even in the sustainability world, in the conservation world a lot, we get that question often just in working with companies. You know, Why are you working with certain companies in certain areas or, or to help their business be resilient? And again, it's about what they do when a shock or a stress hits and what we want to avoid them doing when that shock or that stress hits. Something happens with a company, they either cut their sustainability team or divest from their sustainability initiatives, or they have to, they panic, they hit the panic button and they move to a new place to try to, to pick up the slack in their supply chain. Well, that can come at the cost of a lot of different things on the ground when you're moving to new areas or trying to get a product from somewhere else that ne- isn't necessarily set up to achieve your sustainability initiatives or benefit people in nature. And then we have to sort of start over. That's the reason that I do the work that I'm doing is because we, we try to take this sort of systems perspective of things and understand that if one thing happens, then it's going to impact something else more broadly. And we can't just look at one or the other. And and really, the conservation sustainability practice or, or space itself right now needs to fundamentally shift to account for these changing conditions and, and climate change so that we're designing resilience into everything that we do. So we've given people a primer of th- this broader conversation. And I want to jump into this great conversation that we've had with Ben Jordan of Coca-Cola. So you're going to come back at the end of this episode and we're going to do a bit of a wrap up. But yeah, let's just jump in with Ben. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back. We have a very exciting episode for you. Joining me is David Kuhn and Ben Jordan. David is a lead for corporate resilience at World Wildlife Fund. Ben is the senior director of packaging and climate at the Coca-Cola company. Hi, guys. Welcome to the show. Hey, Doug. Thanks for having me. Hey there, Doug. Glad to be here. All right, this is an unusual episode for me. I'm talking to Coca-Cola and I got World Wildlife Fund. I've been very excited leading up to this conversation. So David, I want to get started with you. Can you 
briefly give us some background on WWF's program with corporate engagement? Yeah, generally in corporate engagement, we engage with companies to meet our mission. Our mission is for people to live in harmony with nature. So we engage with companies along to achieve that goal. And we have a really sort of broad range of different corporate partners that we seek to do that with, Coca-Cola being one of them. So we engage everyone from the aviation sector to the food and beverage sector to the hotel sector, all to sort of align their sustainability goals with our conservation mission. So we have a a pretty big shop. I myself am lead on resilience in the resilience and adaptation shop where I engage with companies specifically and mostly sort of on climate change, resilience to climate change. Okay. That's very encouraging to see WWF working with a company like Coca-Cola. So Ben, and we're going to drill down into some of the details. Can you introduce us more broadly on some of the work Coca-Cola is doing in this space? Sure. Thanks, Doug. And at the Coca-Cola Company, our sustainability priorities are really broad and across environmental sustainability as well as social sustainability. From the environmental side, and that's the area where um, that I represent, we have partnered with World Wildlife Fund for about 20 years, and I've been personally engaged in the partnership for that amount of time. And the partnership has mostly been around freshwater, freshwater conservation, or at least for the first 10 years or so. And then we started integrating other aspects into that as well, whether that's climate change, packaging and circular economy, or sustainable agriculture. For about the last 10 years or so, we've been working across the whole suite of our environmental sustainability platforms. So David, I want to get some examples and I guess just give us some details of how you've actually been working with Coca-Cola around these issues. Yeah, on resilience specifically, I mean, as Ben mentioned, we've been working with Coke for a long time. So we've been doing a lot with them around the globe and specifically on freshwater. It makes sense. Coke's number one commodity is water. They need water to make their products. So that's where we started engaging with them on some sustainability initiatives. We came in about two years ago to expand sort of those traditional sustainability initiatives like freshwater conservation, you know, some of those efficiencies where drop in, drop out within their operations more broadly to resilience for the landscape. So we started working together, Ben and myself, a few years ago in Guatemala in a pilot where Coke had invested in a lot of these, again, more traditional sustainability measures on the landscape. There was a protected area on top of a mountain range, and the Coke bottler at the bottom of the mountain range was getting its water essentially from that protected area. That cloud forest was providing water to like 32 or so different rivers and streams. By the time it got down to the Coke bottling plant, there are a number of other folks on the landscape that had straws in that same water, and climate change was impacting that water source in that protected area. So despite all of the, the sustainability initiatives in the protected area itself, right? The impacts of climate change were having an impact on those sustainability initiatives themselves, also on all the communities and all the other stakeholders on the landscape there that were using the same water source. So we came in and we got a better picture of all those dynamics that were going on, how everybody on the landscape, you know, the other smallholder farmers and communities were using that water, how they were responding to the drought. And then we helped all those different stakeholder groups on the landscape put together what's called an integrated watershed management plan. So figure out how everyone can meet differing but tangential goals as far as water use was concerned so that everyone would get the water that they needed. There wasn't any conflict around the water or the protected area that was supplying that water. We put together a management plan that got everybody on the same page. And then we started to knock out different initiatives that could help meet that management plan's goals. So we started to develop an early warning system for folks 
for farmers so that they understood when a drought or some other extreme weather event was coming, that it was coming and what they could do about it. We help Coke invest in the right way in that protected area management. So understanding that climate change is going to impact that cloud force in that protected area. So fighting fires in that protected area was of utmost importance because it was shrinking, you know, as it was as a cloud forest. So those are sort of the types of things that we do on a project by project basis. But really, the core of what we want to accomplish here is to roll all of these learnings, everything that we do, all these sustainability measures and and resilience measures up into strategy for the company itself. So really ingrain some of the concepts into business decisions. And that's, I think, the the gold standard that we want to get to is we want to make sustainability or investment in nature and people fundamental to a business. And we do that, or at least we did with Coke through pilots and those learnings and then rolling it up into strategy. So Ben, things get very complicated very quickly around climate change. What has the feedback been for people there in Guatemala representing Coca-Cola and that what David described there, lots of different steps and such, but what sort of feedback are you hearing and, and how do you there at Coke kind of incorporate this? You know, you think about a country or a landscape like the situation in Guatemala that David described, and you have a, a local Coca-Cola bottler operating within a community using water, right, as one of many water users in the community, community that's vulnerable to climate change, right? And it's not just about water and, and our use of water, but overall interaction with the community in general. And then you think about things like agricultural sourcing regions that are nearby, sugarcane, for example, that we might actually use in our products, right? So we try and take a big picture perspective, even in a small place, right? Because it's not just about the operation itself or the water that is supplied into it, but it's that overall landscape for us. And we want to be a valued member in that community, right? In every community where we operate around the world. So, you know, in particular, in those places that are vulnerable to climate change, we need to understand how all of those impacts interrelate and make sure we're engaged in a way that's reducing our impact, that we're continuing to operate in as efficiently and effectively as a way as we can, but also, again, being a valued member in the community. Now, how we click that up to the global level and think about our longer term strategies, we look at situations like the situation in Guatemala, we've built a toolkit with David that we're now using to roll out to other landscapes around the world. At a global level, we conduct climate risk vulnerability assessments and other evaluations to sort of determine where are those most climate vulnerable areas of the world, where are our operations most impacted, maybe it's ag sourcing regions or just the communities that we provide product and, and supply to ourselves. You know, where are those places that we need to focus more actively to improve our programs, but also adapt to climate changes that may be happening in the future? Great. And I want to learn a little bit more about what Coke is doing, the vulnerabilities and assessments and all that, these sort of new tools and such. But I want to talk about sustainability. And David, I'm going to go to you from high level, from World Wildlife Fund's point of view. What's the difference between sustainability and resilience? Because sustainability has been around for a lot longer. There's a lot more people dedicated to that issue. So How do you see the differences between those two terms? Yeah, so I don't know if I would totally 
both terms have sort of been reiterated and conflated with different things. And there's sustainability shops within companies. Companies have also been thinking about resilience for a long time too, right? The resilience of their companies. Now, sustainability, right? Sustainability had a meaning where it was essentially bringing the world or any certain aspect of a supply chain or more, more so nature back into balance. Sustainability, again, because it's been redefined so many times, has come to mean sort of reducing environmental impacts reducing your footprint, ultimately sort of hopefully improving quality of life and the bottom line. But it's more this like, how much can we chip away or stress the system, but keep getting what we want out of it? That's what sustainability has come to mean. We're at a a point now where we have to define I think resilience and sustainability more concretely in order to avoid this term washout that we've seen happen with sustainability, where sustainability sort of assumes this functioning sort of stable system. So to take that a step further, right, you have a farmer who wants to increase their sustainability by reducing pesticides, but at the same time, they might open the door to their vulnerability to new outbreaks. Resilience, I think, is a much more proactive and deep approach to systems change. It starts or acknowledges a shock or a stress to a system, again, where sustainability starts with a functioning or a stable system. Resilience starts with a stress or a shock. It starts with that disaster and then looks how to clean up afterwards, considers how to prevent or minimize a future disaster or minimize, say, the negative effects of a disaster. So in that same example, to build resilience to pest outbreaks, that same farmer may begin planting, say, pest-resistant crops. They could switch to entirely new crops. They could move production to new areas where it wasn't before, where the pests might not yet be present or they can begin using pesticides. You can see how some of those are sustainability strategies or strategies that are sustainable. Some are not. If these two terms aren't thought of in a more sort of concerted way, if you don't start with intentionality when you're thinking about resilience and sustainability, each can come at a certain cost. And we've seen this a lot, right? When something bad happens, there's a shock to a system. It's sort of an all for yourselves mentality where companies or others grab resources in order to survive and and recover. So any sustainability strategy in the world might not necessarily prepare you for a shock or a stress. At the same time, resilience might not necessarily obviously mean sustainability. We see a lot of times where a company or another entity might be resilient at the expense of somebody else. There are a lot of trade-offs that need to be considered when you're thinking about resilience and sustainability. Uh, We obviously encourage companies to use sustainability or sustainability measures to be resilient, but there's a lot of thinking that needs to go into this. As you mentioned earlier, Doug, Right, it, it gets complicated really quickly. So that's high level. I think how we think about. It. So Ben, I'm I'm curious to get your professional observations. You know, sustainability does go back much farther than what we typically think of climate adaptation, climate resilience, and it's this emerging area. Definitely lots of overlap, but you must have seen this kind of coming along, saying, "Well, that we do a lot of similar things, but it's different here or there." And being in the sustainability space for a while, some professional observations on how how the two issues kind of work together. Sure. Maybe if I were to just simplify it down, you know, sustainability and of course our sustainability work has been around, uh, you know, for a while. We've had programs around packaging and, and water and climate for a couple of decades now. Our sustainable agriculture work is about a decade on at this point. And what is that really about? You know, it's about 
using our resources as efficiently and effectively as possible so that there's plenty to go around, right? And there's plenty for us to continue to, to operate our business. And David said, you know, when you come at resilience and, and some of this climate risk work, you think about that more from the standpoint of disruptions, supply chain disruptions that might happen regardless of how well you're managing your resources and, and your business. And so, you know, how do you prepare and respond to those? And there are some short-term immediate shocks that might happen, whether it's a big weather event or a, a temporary drought, you know, in a place if you're thinking about water scarcity or an ag sourcing region. But then there are also the chronic stresses and the long-term climate change. And so it's really about, you know, trying to figure out and in a global business like Coca-Cola, where you're going to have those local shocks place by place, right, around the world, but trying to manage so that you don't have too many of those within a global supply chain, you're able to absorb, if you will, some of those shocks that might happen on a local by local basis, but also learn from those so that you're putting programs in place globally and region by region to be able to respond to those better in the future, you know, hopefully avoid them so that they don't happen, but realizing that some shocks will happen, you know, how do you make sure that you're prepared to respond to them when they do? David, what are the challenges that you're seeing when we're talking about the gap between action and need with the private sector when it comes to climate resilience? Well, I think we've touched on it a little bit here, right? It's it's complexity. It's we're not the future is not the past. I think that a lot of the challenge here is for companies and others really to start thinking in a new way. If you think about companies, especially the successful companies, the ones that have maintained profits over the years, they are more reticent to making big fundamental changes to their business because the way that they've been doing things has been working. But what we're seeing with climate change is that, again, the future is not the past. We're going to be hit with things. It's about planning for uncertainty. And that's a difficult concept, I think, for a lot of folks to grasp. You can't measure resilience in traditional ways. It's harder to, to quantify resilience. So it's harder to put a goal or a target on resilience or adaptation. So it's harder for companies to count and get credit for and, and really understand and track. The thing is, if we're going to only act when something is certain, it's going to be too late. So what we really want to see is successful companies are going to be the ones who see the writing on the wall. They're going to be innovative. They're going to be big picture thinkers, and they're going to have to take some risks in order to avoid a lot of the impacts or at least be able to manage a lot of the impacts that climate change is going to present to them in the future. So it's, I think some of the challenge is stepping into that unknown for not only just companies, but, but a lot of people out there is not trying to predict the future, but setting yourself up for success in a way that you haven't before. Okay. So Ben, it seems like companies have been pretty good at responding to short-term shocks like weather disasters. And you've sort of talked about, you know, okay, the company is going to do this, but what about you look at adaptation overall and there's this notion of transformational resilience. And when you're doing annual reports for you know, stockholders and such, how do you think about those issues? You know, I would say a couple of things there, Doug. On one level, it's being more and more aware <laughs> of what those risks are, what the impact is to the business, how it connects directly to the business that you're in, right? And it's not just a sustainability person's problem, right? Or a sustainability project to work on, but it's fully integrated across the business. And so it's understanding those risks, identifying those risks, quantifying those risks, you know, more and more expectation of real disclosure around what those risks are and what programs you're putting in place to mitigate and adapt, 
you know, the movements by the, the SEC to do more and require more around climate risk and disclosure are certainly something that we and many companies like us are, are heavily engaged in right now, trying to determine exactly how we might respond to that or what comments we might you know, put in to influence how those play out in the future. You know, clearly a, a lot of focus is being put towards this, you know, on our side and, and on the part of others. But ultimately, it's about understanding what those risks are, quantifying those risks, disclosing them and having adequate programs in place to respond to them. It's not just about responding to those short-term shocks, but understanding, you know, when does the increased frequency of immediate shocks mean something different's going on in the world. It's not just about a short-term or a one-time event, but there are more and more of these one-time events that are happening. When does it turn into a chronic issue? When is it something that we need to be thinking about in the context of three-year planning or five-year planning or 10-year planning? I mean, unfortunately, you know, businesses all are focused on the short-term, even long-term planning in a business context is not always as long as you want it to be in the climate risk and resilience context. So we've been engaging a lot with our enterprise risk management organization and team uh, within the company and really doing all that we can to, again, integrate across the business. So it's not just a, a sustainability program or a sustainability project, but clearly is integrated to the rest of the business. Okay, David, I'm looking forward to your answer here. And so how does mitigation or emissions reduction factor in here? And if you think about, does adaptation play a lesser role for the corporate sector? And I think about this example in Guatemala, you know, it's important, obviously, corporations reduce their carbon footprint, but in the big picture, your average corporation really is just a drop in the bucket. But when you look at adaptation, it really impacts a lot more companies than let's say the emission side. But I think it's the emission and the carbon side still probably gets a lot of their attention. Yeah, I mean certainly and again for some of the reasons we've been we've been outlining here mitigation gets a lot of attention because you can put a number on it mitigation gets a lot of attention it is very necessary right and it's something that needs to happen now and it's going to take everybody but it's a global effort so everybody needs to move on it adaptation is much more local these mitigation actions are going to take decades to affect rising temperatures we need to adapt now right the change is already here we already see it happen and it's going to continue to affect us in the foreseeable future. We need to take mitigation and adaptation hand in hand, right? They need to be two sides of the same coin. It can't be an either or. It can't be we're going to put all our eggs in the mitigation bucket and hope that we don't need to adapt. At the same time, we need to adapt in a way that has mitigation benefits. We need to be able to do both things at the same time. While we're aiming for 1.5 degree increase, and that's increasingly unlikely, it's still going to be an increase. So focusing on adaptation is not saying that we're giving up. And that's, I think, a point that some folks come to me wondering, well, if I invest in adaptation, does that mean I'm giving up on climate change? Companies need to do both. I think everyone really needs to, to focus on both. And there are plenty of sort of win-wins out there, right? While mitigation efforts are going to ease the burden on adaptation, they're going to lessen the stress on adaptation solutions. There are things like nature-based solutions that are themselves at risk from climate change. It would be best if our solutions multitask, right? And I think that's sort of the takeaway here. Companies and governments need to start thinking about multi-win solutions and counting them. That could be something like protecting, restoring, renovating is a new word being thrown around, wetlands, 
which sequester and store a ton of carbon. Not literally. I'm sure they, they sequester quite a bit more than a ton of carbon, but they have the potential to sort of provide these livelihood benefits, bolster the resilience of coastal communities, you know, buffer them against storm surges as well. So there are win-win solutions there. Agroforestry, right? You can plant trees and pastures where you have grazing cattle and those trees can sequester carbon five to 10 times more carbon than a treeless area of the same size. So there are solutions that work together, but they need to be prioritized. And really when we're talking about solutions, well, we need to be intentional about what we're trying to solve for in order to maximize the benefits of that solution. We don't want to cut down a forest, plant fast-growing eucalyptus to sequester the most carbon that we can, right? We also want to think about the adaptation benefits and be intentional about how we're designing these things so that we have these benefits. And we're not just exacerbating the same sort of issues that got us into the problem in the first place, like degrading natural resources and causing social inequities. Okay. So Ben, you're representing the corporate sector and regulations, obviously very important. So where do you see, I guess, incentives or regulations, where where do they need to move to support sustainability and resilience? You know, certainly the movement towards more disclosure by companies of climate risk and reporting on their programs for mitigating and adapting to those risks. Certainly that's a good idea overall, right? And, And I think that will really drive a connection between climate climate risk and overall business impact and value. So I see that as a promising movement. You know, as we think about some of our other areas of sustainability, so whether it's water or our packaging and circular economy, which is another area I, I work on a lot, or, you know, even in the area of climate, you know, there certainly is a role for government to engage more actively on these issues and to incentivize the right behavior across the board. David, where have you seen progress and where do you think there's more work to be done? And I'm thinking about this new SEC rule. Can you explain that and just elaborate on that being a progress in this space? And and to Ben's point, right, it's reporting is great because it raises the bar. So the SEC rule is a good example of this. If you make reporting on climate risk and climate mitigation, either impact mitigation, risk mitigation, or actual climate mitigation efforts, if you make that mandatory, then it's going to raise the bar for some of those laggards, right? So far, it's been voluntary. The new SEC rule is closely mirrored to, as it's written right now, it's closely mirrored to the task force on climate risk financial disclosure methodology or or framework Um, that asks companies essentially to report on their risk to climate change, either transformational risk or physical risk. It leaves the door open for interpretation where a lot of companies can decide what they think is material to their business and how they do report on this risk. And that's great. It, it creates more awareness of the issue. It helps companies highlight what's actually putting their business at risk. Hopefully, you know, if they're really framing that risk analysis in the right way, but it's risk reporting. And what we've seen with other platforms is that gets you somewhere, but it doesn't get you far enough. What I think where progress really needs to be made is in what good adaptation, what good resilience looks like and more guidance there. And then as Ben said, incentivize those kinds of solutions. I think we need governments, we need financiers, banks, reinsurers, others to get on the same page about what good climate adaptation, good climate resilience that benefits the most, that reduces the most trade-offs, what that looks like and and incentivize that. Action's always sort of slow in the policy realm. I think we're happy that the SEC, again, is doing something to get everybody to the table or at least recognizing the issue, but there are going to be always 
going to be steps that are going to have to be taken after that, after risk reporting to actually do something about that risk. Again, that's not compromising the resilience or the well-being of others. So that's where this like constant dialogue is going to need to happen and, and always sort of appreciate the, the opportunity to have these sort of conversations to make sure or to at least get our voices out there, describe where we think that future should be going so that we don't fall in, again into the same sort of pitfalls that we have in the past when it comes to regulating things. And Ben, do you have anything to add? You know, thinking about the SEC rule, it was a pretty big decision coming out. You know, I think, uh, again, uh, movements towards more disclosure in general are very good. There is a lot of detail in the, the draft rules that are going to make it very difficult for corporations. And so it will be really interesting just to see how exactly that final rule you know, plays out and, and what those exact requirements are. But again, you know, movement towards more disclosure, good to drive connection to business impact and, and business value and to kind of raise or level the playing field so that all companies are identifying and, and quantifying risk and, and disclosing more. So, so really good there. Ben, I'm going to stick with you. And do you sense that other large corporations are thinking specifically around adaptation and resilience? Because obviously sustainability has been around for decades, but the conversations that you have and those circles that you run, are they thinking about it a lot more? From what I have seen, certainly this is an area of increasing activity in corporations. We have worked, in addition to our work with David over the last several years, we've been working through BSR, Business for Social Responsibility, on a risk to resilience platform, engaging with about half a dozen other corporations to sort of build out common approaches across business to how we can all be approaching risk mitigation and adaptation. There certainly is increasing dialogue out in the sustainability space more broadly around the broader impacts on our businesses, not just our impact on the world as businesses, but what is the world, what is climate change's impact on us? You know, for example, our 2030 climate plan has three key elements to it. It's our carbon footprint, so our science-based targets for our carbon footprint reduction the climate's impact on us, so climate risk and resilience and disclosure, and then partnership and collective action to drive progress against both of those key pillars. Other major corporations are approaching their climate work you know, the, the same way, so a lot of activity in this area. Okay, I'm going to ask you both this question. I'm going to start with you, David. And do you feel that you're connected to the adaptation space and you know, it's this emerging sector and there's a national adaptation forum and there's associations coming out and you can participate and I guess you can network with colleagues that are really just doing adaptation. And so, David, do you feel like you're connected there or you just still feel like you're connected to the conservation space? And of course, you're working with corporate people because that's your program. But is this larger adaptation universe that's kind of emerging, do you feel connected to it at all? That's a good question. I feel connected to it in the sense that I mean, we're invited to a lot of these forums, right? And I think the the space is evolving where everyone wants to get into it. Everyone wants to learn from each other. But where I feel disconnected is potentially in, <laughs> in, in that same space and the complication that so many different platforms and so many different metrics and so many different other certification efforts, you know, with everybody crowding into the space, there are a lot of different voices, a different goalposts. 
while we may be consulted, we're not necessarily always, our advice isn't necessarily always heated because a lot of people also want to move very quickly in the space and, and sort of build the plane while they're flying it. I think it's great that everybody, there's interest in climate adaptation and resilience. I think that there's more interest in things like nature-based solutions, things like how to use sustainability or how as a solution or how to consolidate sustainability and, and resilience efforts. So there's interest there. And again, we're plugged into those conversations, but more coordination, I think would be beneficial for everybody. And Ben, before you answer, I just I want to add with the National Adaptation Forum, it's actually a relatively new conference. And so they haven't had a lot of corporate presence at those conferences. I think they're improving with each new one. But I'm curious, and this isn't a leading question that, well, you should be connected to them, but it's more like, have you felt the need to do it? Or do you feel the circles that you run in, what you're doing right now, that's adequate and that meets all your information needs? Just more curious on how you kind of tap into that space. Look, from from our side, I would say, and again, our key environmental sustainability platform areas are water, the natural resource we rely on most, right? Number one ingredient in all of our products. Packaging, just about all of our products, you know, are, are in a bottle or a can or some other type of package. Climate change, our carbon footprint and carbon climate's impact on us. And then sustainable agriculture, environmental and social practices in agriculture. This risk and resilience space is really where all of those issues come together. And I would say historically, we have managed our work more in silos. And so as we look to integrate more across the different areas and, and approach things like resilience and adaptation, I think we will need some additional forums and some additional engagement out there. Great. David, so what's next for you guys? What's Where's the program headed or anything that you can give us a preview of, of what, how some of this corporate engagement or even some of the work you're doing with Coca-Cola? Yeah, good question. If you're not learning, you're not practicing resilience. That's an, an adage that I've learned to accept. So we're looking for new spaces to do the same things, the same sorts of things that we did in Guatemala, right? So we're trying to understand where the risk is and then, then build out platforms. And then really where all of this needs a, a bump is in the scale and financing and partnering space. So I think we'll be looking for opportunities to do those things over the coming years and really continue to prove the concept that we that WWF and Coke sort of together have started to prove over the last three or so years where what resilient people, resilient nature lays the foundation for a resilient business. Now, the specifics of that, obviously, how that works, how that's operationalized is going to differ from place to place. So you really need to start hitting the ground and getting out there. And that's what we're hoping to do in some of the places that we care about and that Coke cares about over the next few years. I think more broadly, you know, we're just looking to continue to grow our learnings with other companies as well. We get a lot of interest from companies in how to do this. And I think that interest is only going to pick up. So to Ben's point, figuring out what those broad learnings are and and how to inject them into these different forums, different standards and certifications and platforms is going to be another thing that we're looking to do in the future so that we can multiply our efforts and our learnings from the work that we've done with Coke and really get our message out there and our principles of, of resilience out there so that everybody does get on the same page. Okay, Ben, I, for, for my listeners, especially with maybe more corporate backgrounds, any resources or anything that Coke has done that you could direct them to that they could learn more about your process? Sure. I would say take a look at our website and our sustainability reports over the last several years. And over the last three or four, 
we have now combined our sustainability now ESG environment, social and governance report with our overall business and, and financial report. And so that's a good resource, but it also points to more detailed reports around areas like water, areas like packaging and other community efforts that we're doing around the world. But I would say the WWF work, the toolkit that we worked on with David, which is, has turned into some broader tools and reports by World Wildlife Fund, as well as that BSR platform I mentioned, the Risk to Resilience platform. There are some interesting tools there that are support tools for practitioners like me right, in corporations that are looking to make change in this area. Okay, great. And I'll have links to those resources in the show notes for this episode if people want to dig around. All right, David and Ben, this has been an awesome conversation. I have not really engaged with the corporate sector that often. And so I I like to learn what you guys are up to. So thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Doug. Pleasure being with you. Yeah, thanks, Doug. It was a pleasure. We are back and I'm with David again, and I wanted to bring him on and wrap up this conversation. That was a fantastic conversation with Ben, but there's just some areas that I wanted to wrap up with you, David. How do you keep sustainability at the forefront and yet acknowledge resilience out there? It's really about injecting sustainability into the resilience space when we're talking to companies. We've been doing both things for a bit of time. There are people who have been working on the resilience of their companies for a while. There have been people that are maybe even longer that have been working, as you mentioned, Doug, on sustainability, right? That space is pretty mature. So that's where we start the conversations. And to heart back to our resilience principles, right? The, the do no harm to nature piece is fundamental to our resilience principles. So you can point back to sustainability as a core tenet of resilience when we talk with companies. So we really want to use sustainability as a means to being resilient. And it's about talking to the right people, connecting those dots internally. And it takes a you know a good bit of work when you're talking to a company, figuring out how they work internally, where those ins and outs are, where those connections are within a company to figure out what would build that resilience of the company while focusing on their sustainability goals and sustainability as our mission. There's a bit of a climate autopsy that you have to do with companies where you take a look at past events and understand sort of how it impacted the company, how it might have impacted its sustainability initiatives. You really got to get under the hood and and dig in and, and really prove the concept to companies. It's kind of tough about this gig is that companies often need to see those return on investments in order to make some of these big scalable decisions. So we need to make that business case for them on sustainability for resilience in order to really make any impact on how a company makes decisions. So you have gone through this experience, but I have a lot of listeners. They could be local government officials, urban planners, and a lot of them have just fully jumped into the adaptation space, but they too are having to deal with businesses and companies and talking about resilience, talking about adaptation, and those local businesses might still be focusing on sustainability. Any advice to them on how they're going to do this outreach, how they learn the lingual and how they be as effective as you have been? And just as you're thinking at scale here too. Learning the lingo is a, is a big one. Asking a lot of questions of resilience comes with understanding and, and information sharing and relationship building. I think that's a core piece of it. So being open-minded, understanding how a system, and I'm talking about broadly, a system works. We do a lot of WWF systems mapping work where we try to understand what all the influences on, say, a specific stakeholder, a specific company, a specific small business might be. Rather than working 
sort of myopically on any one piece of that system. In that exercise, you talk to a lot of people. You have to reach out to a lot of people. You have to understand how they talk about different things. Being transparent and sharing information and having these discussions. I think we always talk about resilience being a process and not an end goal. So not going in with any sort of preconceived notion about what you want to achieve, what that end state looks like. But really about investing in the process is really key here because again, resilience can't sort of be measured in those traditional ways. You're not going to get to it. You can't build seven resiliences, right? You need to be realistic about what you're going, what time and interest and knowledge you're going to invest anywhere to really do this meaningfully because again, it's ongoing and you really, you need to be aware of that. You need to be in it for the long haul. And I asked Ben this, but I'm curious your thoughts. And so if you look at companies, do you sense that they're trying to plug into the adaptation universe and there's new associations, there's conferences, and do you feel like they're making those efforts to plug into this emerging adaptation area? Yeah, certainly. We Interest in our shop has grown exponentially in the, in the past few years. Again, it's because the writing's on the wall. A number of reports have come out that have really brought to light the importance of adaptation in addressing climate change and preparing and, and responding to climate change. You know, companies are aware of this. There's also the whole idea of risk for a company has sort of shifted in the past, I'd say, couple of decades, where it's not just about how much you can get at what price, at what time. Well, there are these different factors that you need to consider, like your reputation, like the health of your workforce, like your social license to operate. You know, these different things that don't just impact the four walls of your business, but more broadly. So, you know, this is opening the, the eyes of the companies to this idea that you need to be investing in the right way in adaptation and resilience. So more companies are coming to the table to try to understand how it works in practice. You know, again, there are a lot of different ways that you can define resilience and adaptation. You need to put some bounds around the definition in order for it to be done right so that it's not you're not investing in maladaptation. So while companies, they're increasing their interest in the space, there are a lot of different voices out there trying to define this as well. You know, a lot of different places that companies could go to get advice. And I think that's sort of where a, a more work needs to be done is in consolidating all these efforts and finding a direction or a path that sets everybody on towards the right goals. I think that's going to be important in the future. Because again, interest is skyrocketing. If we don't get there to some common definition or understanding or metrics, then it could be a washed out term. As we wrap this up, what would you recommend if someone wants to learn more about what you're doing and you just overall just kind of get into this space? What should they do? Sure. I mean, we have some publications out there. We released one last year called Rising to Resilience, which lays the foundation for some of our thinking. And then we have some companion pieces coming out and blogs. Again, there are a lot of different voices out there on adaptation. It's tough to say who's right and who's wrong because you can define it in a number of ways. They could all be right. Depends on what you're working on. So I'm not sure that there's one resource that can set you on the right path. But do your research. You know, there's a lot out there. My door is always open if anyone has any questions to just discuss this. And we're always interested in learning ourselves. I always encourage people to, to reach out to WWF or myself to further the conversation. David, 
I ask this of all my guests, if you could recommend one person and maybe in light of what we've been talking about in this episode, who would you recommend to come on the podcast? Yeah, that's a good and very tough question. And I would say, you know, kind of back to our earlier discussion on who I speak to within a company, I would recommend that we sort of get out of the sustainability space and adaptation space because it becomes like this echo chamber sometimes. And a lot of the conferences I go to, you're just saying the same thing over and over again. So I would love to see some policymakers come to the table, ministers of the environment. The banking sector is an interesting one because they've sort of gotten in front of this issue when it comes to TCFD, the new SEC rule, the financial institutions and, and the insurers and reinsurers are all often the first to be impacted by climate change. So they've done a lot of research. So I think re- reaching out to different sectors would be a great step. I don't have names, but I'm sure there are a lot of those folks out there that would be interested in talking about this. Okay. Yeah. Great recommendations there. And I think digging around, they actually do find some names, but uh, I do like those different areas that you're, you, you think I should focus on. All right, David, this has been fantastic. I appreciate you recruiting Ben of Coca-Cola to come on and, and sharing his story. And thanks for what you're doing. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Doug. It's been a pleasure. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to David and Ben for coming on the podcast and talking about their unique partnership. It's been fascinating watching corporate America get their heads around the issue of climate adaptation and resilience. They have a long history in sustainability, and I'm sure it's been a roller coaster evolving to think about the issue of climate change. And what a unique and necessary program WWF offers with its corporate engagement program. As David noted, they've created some amazing resources for businesses to get their start on their adaptation journey. In my show notes, check out their Rising to Resilience, a practical guide for business and nature. It's a step-by-step approach for business to start this adaptation planning. Again, this episode would not have been possible without the generous sponsorship of World Wildlife Fund. I have done multiple collaborations with WWF, and it's always a joy to share their stories on the podcast. And since we did this recording, David is now a first-time father, welcoming his son, Arlo Michael Kuhn, into the world. Congratulations, David. Another reason why your work is so important. Okay, so what's your adaptation story? Do people that you engage with understand what is climate adaptation? Are you finding that webinars and white papers really aren't resonating in ways that promote your work? Well, consider telling your story in a podcast. World Wildlife Fund shared their story in this episode. If you're interested in highlighting your adaptation story, consider sponsoring a whole episode of America Adapts. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. I go on location and record these sponsored podcasts, which allows you a wider diversity of guests to participate. You will work with me to identify experts that represent the amazing work you're doing. Some of my partners have been, well, WWF, NRDC, University of Pennsylvania, Wharton, UCLA, University of Florida, Harvard, MIT, and some corporate clients. It's a chance to share your story with all my listeners who represent the most influential people in the adaptation space. Most projects have communications written into them. Consider budgeting in a podcast. Podcasts have a long shelf life, much more so than a white paper or conference presentation. Many groups work into their communication strategies. If you work in a foundation, maybe you want to highlight the adaptation resilient work of your foundation or the grantees you're funding. There's no better platform than this podcast to get the word out on adaptation to some of the most influential and active adaptation professionals in the world. And keep in mind, previous sponsors have used this podcast to communicate with their own members, board members, and even funders. My previous sponsors have found the process actually pretty fun since there's a lot of creativity involved. But 
Putting a podcast together is a lot more exciting and satisfying than putting a paper together. Please reach out. Let's have a conversation so you can learn more. And especially if you are helping organize a conference, I've done conference podcasts, chance to capture some of the people that are attending and the overall goals of that conference and allows that conference to live way past when you're actually having it. So consider that. Okay. I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. If you have an idea for guests, let me know. Seriously, it's the highlight of my week when I get an email from you guys. Sometimes it leads to really cool things. I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. Send me an email. Okay, adapters. Keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.